All right, so if you have a Bible, open it up with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter, chapter 7, and I'll do, I'm going to read one verse, and then I'll give the exposition, and then I'll give the application, or, or introduce the application, and then we'll pray, and then I will uh, continue to preach application for the next hour. So, I like to at least settle everything in the scriptures, and I don't like to just use a verse as, as a banner over a topic. So I do want to at least give a little bit of explanation of, as to what we're going to read. So Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now notice three things here that Ezra, that, that describe Ezra. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. He did the law of the Lord, or we might say he was obedient to, he patterned his life after the law of the Lord, and he taught his, that is the Lord's statutes and rules. He studied it, he obeyed it, and he taught it. Now here in the person of Ezra, we have a pattern that I do believe all of God's people should expect to follow to some extent. We should all aspire to be teachers, husbands to their wives, to their children, wives to friends, co-workers, to mothers, to children, and so on and so forth. Everyone is called to be a disciple maker. And so we should all have a desire to teach someone, but we must first be obedient to the Word ourselves before we can begin to teach it. And before we can do it or obey it and teach it, our hearts have to be set to study it. And so tonight again as we study this chapter of our confession on the Scriptures, um, we're going to participate in an exercise that's just that. It is a, an exercise in the study of the Scriptures. So let's pray that God would set our hearts to study the Scriptures. That's the, the goal tonight, a very uh, instructional, I guess we could say, time tonight. But let's pray that the Lord will use it for our edification. Lord, we do thank You and praise You that we... We can have a copy of the Scriptures in our hands. And then we can take it home and we can read it and we can study it and we can set our hearts to study it and to do it and to teach it. And uh, Lord, there, there are very few, if any, obstacles in our path to do this except for the things that we set up in our own hearts and minds. And so um, I pray that you'd help us to see that, that you would set our hearts uh, to this task and that we would be edified tonight as a body by looking at the Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in looking at this first chapter of the Confession, we've looked at, in the first paragraph, first, the nature of the Holy Scriptures. We saw that stated in the first line. And then after that first sentence, we saw the nature of the Holy Scriptures defended. And there the framers went in and explained first, general revelation, what all general revelation can do. And it 
goes so far as to leave all men without an excuse before God. Everyone knows that there is a God and can see and discern things about God from general revelation and creation. But general revelation falls short and does not give us that, uh, that information that we need to come to a saving knowledge of God through Christ. And so special revelation, the apostles and prophets and the writings of the Holy Scripture have been preserved and kept for the church to give us that knowledge of God that leads to salvation. Now, in all of that, so far in that first paragraph of the confession, it has been assumed what, quote, the Holy Scripture actually is. And it's not until this, these, uh, the second and third paragraph that the specific writings of the Scripture are spelled out. Again, if we came to this a blank slate, and we just began to read and had never heard the word Scripture or writings, at this point we would be saying, what in the world are the Scriptures? What do you mean? And so if you have a copy of the Confession, you can read with me, and I'll read the second and third paragraph, and we'll try to cover both of those tonight. The second paragraph says, Under the name of the Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. Of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon, the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Epistle of James, the 1st and 2nd Epistles of Peter, the 1st and 2nd and 3rd Epistles of John, the Epistle of Jude, the revelation, all which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Paragraph number three. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. <coughs> now, as I struggled with how to go about teaching these two sections in a way that would be of the most benefit, I considered myself and what kind of information has helped me the most when it came to understanding the Bible and the particular books in the Bible. 
And I would imagine that for most of us, while we may be coming to terms with specific doctrines, or maybe even familiarizing ourselves with particular passages of Scripture, the overall scope of the Bible as one body of Scripture, one body of literature, sort of remains a mystery. In other words, we understand the Bible as a complete story. Or we may say that, but we don't really understand how all the pieces fit. Now, how many of us, if we were asked, what does Haggai benefit? What does, what does that book bring to the canon of Scripture? We, we would begin to, to, to stutter. Because the Bible is such a large volume, and most of us struggle to read through it in any reasonable period of time, by the time we get to Revelation, we've already forgotten what was written in Ezekiel. And so we don't even realize that Ezekiel 38 through 40 are almost an exact parallel of Revelation 19 through 21. We don't even realize it. And we, we almost never read them together. And so after doing a, a brief survey of a small portion of our congregation this afternoon, I thought that it, or was assured that it might be helpful to walk through and just give a brief description of every book of the Bible. I'm not going to do it to music. There will be no rhyme. Um, it won't be, there will be no dance to it. But, but that's what I want to do. And hopefully this will be something that you can return to in your study. Um, not that you'll have to necessarily take notes on all of it, because if I go really slow, we'll be here a long time. But it will be recorded, and so we can always, you can go back to it and, and get more of it. Um, once you understand what's happening in a book the chapters and the verses begin to make a little bit more sense. And once you understand what's happening in all of the separate books, the scriptures, the entire story makes more sense. And so that's what I want to do. Basically, I'm going to preach a, a, a sermon on the Bible. Now, my method is going to be very simple. In light of our men going through the book, The Art of Prophesying by William Perkins, and since Perkins devotes a chapter to this very topic, and, and some of you men have read ahead, you know he, he breaks all of the books up and gives little descriptions of each. I just want to read through Perkins' description of the books of the Bible that he has uh, written, those that he's just sort of listed very quickly. I've written or come up with my own uh, descriptions of those, and I'll walk through those as well. Um, for some of you, this will just be recap. All this will just be, well, I know this. For others of you, this is, this is the very foundation of, of studying the Bible, learning what the books are. Um, for, for many of us, just memorizing all of the books in order. We, we did that as children, and, and some of us have not, uh, are not there yet. So maybe this will help you see how all of the Bible fits together, and especially somebody like Perkins who inserts, we all do this, he inserts his presuppositions about how the Bible is put together and what it's all about into his descriptions. He, he's not trying to satisfy anyone or, or uh, I guess you could say satisfy a particular way of reading the Bible. He simply lays it out the way he believed it to be, um, which I think is, is right and proper, the, the historic orthodox view of Scripture. And so that's what I want to do. Now, Perkins breaks up the Old Testament Scriptures into historical, doctrinal, and prophetic books. History, doctrine, and prophecy. Now some of you would use other um, 
divisions, like uh, in the scriptures themselves. They'll talk about the law and the prophets and the writings. Or we might say narrative and poetry and prophecy or something. But he breaks it up into those three categories, history, doctrine, and prophecy. He starts by saying this, The Old Testament is the first part of Scripture, written by the prophets in Hebrew, with some parts in Aramaic. It chiefly unfolds the Old Covenant of works. The historical books record stories of things which took place, that's history, narrative, which illustrate and confirm doctrine which is expounded in other books. And he uses these two passages of Scripture to support that. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. And Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. So we can read the Old Testament, even the, just the stories, and we learn from them. We, we, get, we, we gain instruction in godliness from their examples. So, there are 15 historical books. First is Genesis. The word Genesis means beginnings or the beginning. That's why it's at the beginning. Genesis is a history of the fall, the creation, the fall, the first promise of salvation. That's in Genesis 3.15, third page of the Bible. Well, first, so yeah, third page of the Bible. Of the state of the church preserved and kept within the context of private families. So there from the very beginning we have this promise the seed of the woman will crush the, the head of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And from that promise, the, the story of the Bible begins. We have creation, fall, and then from there, that promise leads to everything else in Scripture. Now notice he says that um, Genesis records the state of the church preserved and kept within the context of private families. He's talking about the church. He doesn't say Israel. Now, that's, it's true. We could, we'll eventually get to Israel. But he, Perkins sees, and I think we should all see, the lineage of the godly, the faithful, the elect, all the way back at the very beginning. And so if you study through Genesis, you see Adam, Enosh, Seth, then Noah, then Shem, then Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. And then we come to the book of Exodus. Exodus is a history of the deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians. It describes the Exodus, the giving of the law, and the tabernacle. So in the Exodus, they, they come out of uh, bondage from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai, and they are given the law and instructions for the tabernacle. Then we come to Leviticus. Leviticus records the regulations for ceremonial worship. A lot of times... We talk about Leviticus as being that most difficult book. We get to Leviticus and we just bog down. The, the, our chariot wheels get marred up, or marred up in the mire and we stop. Because it's just so hard. Well, now you understand what that is. is just the regulations for the ceremonial worship of this nation that God is prescribing. And personally, I find, I find Leviticus more intriguing every time I read it. And so, um, again, like I said last week, when you, when you get bogged down in your reading, don't read less, read more. Um, Leviticus Numbers is a history of the people's military activity in the land of Canaan. So in Numbers, we read about the, the beginning is a lot of counting, a lot of numbers. 
Then they consecrate the tabernacle. You'll remember 10, uh, 12 spies are sent into the promised land. 10 of them come back with a bad report. And so rather than going into the promised land, they're sent back out in the wilderness. So Numbers is when they're in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is a commentary which repeats and explains the laws found in previous books. So we're, we're, we're watching these people. Ten spies come back with a bad report. They have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy is when they come back to the plains of Moab right before they go back into the promised land. They get a second chance. And Moses preaches the law to them again, getting them ready to go into the promised land. Joshua describes the entrance into and possession of the land of Canaan under Joshua. So they go in. Joshua's um, a lot of fighting at the beginning and then uh, deviation of the, the land. Um, is that the word? Deviation? of the land. They're divvying out the land of Canaan. Judges provides a history of the corrupt and hopeless condition of the church and commonwealth of Israel from the days of Joshua up to those of Eli. I mentioned that this morning in the period of the judges. They didn't have a king. They only God would send them judges from time to time. They had rejected God. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. In other words, every man was a king to himself. But God would send a judge from time to time from Joshua up through Eli. Then we have the book of Ruth, which gives an account of the marriages and posterity of Ruth. Now again, if you don't know the whole story of the Bible, you might be wondering, why do we care about Ruth? But if you pay attention, Ruth marries a man named Boaz. Boaz's father was Salmon, who married Rahab the harlot from the book of Joshua. Ruth marries Boaz. Then Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David, King David. And so we're following this line. We like quick snippets. And a lot of times we can't understand why is there a whole book explaining all of this when all I really need to know is Boaz, Ruth, and the, the line. But that's not how they were. This was a people that prided themselves in, in verbal transmission of their history and their lineage. And so, uh, again, if you read the Bible and you're just reading, uh, not to discourage anybody, if you're just reading snippets here and there, it's going to be hard to get into the mindset of the original audience because they read it a lot. They would get together and read large chunks of it, as in the Pentateuch at a time, the first five books. And so that's, what's, that's, that's why this is so hard for us. First and second Samuel record events in the days of the priests Eli and Samuel during the reigns of Saul and David. Remember the judges went all the way through the time of Eli. In first Samuel, the people come and they don't want to be... Uh, they want a king like the rest of the nations. And so they come and they want a king and God gives them Saul. Saul's a bad king and then David comes in after him. In First and Second Kings, um, those books narrate what happened in the days of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now again, if you've not gotten that far, you wonder what in the world Israel and Judah. I thought there was just one. Well, after Solomon... The kingdom was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so now we got, that's what, when you go back and forth, you've got to pay attention. This king is king of what? King of Israel or king of Judah? You might see men with the same name and you wonder, I thought I just read about this guy. 
pay attention. Is this that king of Israel or is that king of Judah? Men have different na- or the same names often. So 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles contain a methodical history of the beginning increase and ruin of the people of Israel and help to trace and explain the lineage of Christ. All the way through all of these kings were watching, especially in Judah. Pay attention to Judah. I mentioned this again recently. Judah was just as treacherous as Israel in their idolatry, but God kept coming back and saying, because of the promise I made to David... I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you. There's, there was always that one. Uh, Judah was the smaller of the two kingdoms. And um, even within Judah, there was that small remnant. So God's preserving His people. So that's First and Second Chronicles. Then we come to Ezra. In Second Chronicles, by the end of Second Chronicles, all of the people are taken off into captivity because of their idolatry. In Ezra, we read the story of the return of the people from captivity in Babylon and the beginning of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem, namely the temple. So they're all in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. There are three main uh, returns. Zerubbabel leads a group first, then Ezra leads a group, then Nehemiah leads a group. So we don't read much about Zerubbabel, um, or he doesn't have his own book. But in Ezra, we read of Ezra leading that group back, and they begin the work on the temple, rebuilding the temple. Then Nehemiah returns, leading a group, and he, that describes the restoring of the city, which as yet remained unfinished. And Nehemiah is much about building the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther is a history of the preservation of the Jewish church in Persia through the action of Esther. So when you read the book of Esther, remember they are in exile at that point. And we're reading, a lot of people say... Um, you know, Esther doesn't mention God anywhere. And we'll talk about the apocryphal books in a moment. One of the apocryphal writings was in addition to Esther. When you begin to read it, you can tell what they wanted to do was make it say something about God. It's like the first line of it is, and God did all this. Because there was this problem with having this book that didn't say anything about God. But if you know all of the the story and what's happening, God is preserving His people in exile through Queen Esther. So that's what He's doing. He's preserving them. And then the last one, uh, last of the history books is Job. Last, oddly enough, is probably the first or the oldest of the books of the Bible. When you read Job, you're reading literature um, from the most ancient of times. So those are the books of history. Then we come to the doctrinal books. Perkins says the dogmatic or doctrinal books are those which teach and prescribe the doctrines of our theology. And he puts four in that category. Again, you've probably heard these called the books of poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Psalms contain sacred songs suitable for every condition of the church and its individual members, composed to be sung with grace in the heart. Proverbs serves as a handbook for Christian behavior and teaches us about piety towards God and justice towards our neighbor. You cannot read Proverbs enough. You can't. 
the wisest man who ever lived contributed a lot to Proverbs. You want to know the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, reveals the emptiness of all human pleasures to the extent that they are experienced apart from the fear of God. You read Ecclesiastes, Solomon sought the richest man, wisest man who ever lived, and he says, I set out. Basically, his goal was, I'm going to find out if there's anything under the sun that can give me pleasure. And with all of his might, he ran after everything that he could possibly find to find pleasure. And by the end, he says, it was all vanity. Now, a foolish man does not learn from the mistakes of others. A smart man, or a foolish man does not learn from his mistakes. A smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. So if we think, oh, I want to try this out and see if it will give me pleasure. You don't have to. Solomon's already tried it. It didn't work. So that's what you learn in Ecclesiastes. And then the Song of Songs, or oftentimes we have the Song of Solomon, is an allegorical description of the relationship between Christ and the church in terms of the relationship between a bridegroom and his bride or a husband and wife. So the Song of Songs, a very uh, romantic tale between husband and wife. Of course, we know that marriage was invented by God to give us a picture of Christ and the church. And so any, any uh, inspired, detailed description of a holy marriage, we would use that to teach us about the love of Christ and His church and vice versa. So those are the doctrinal books. And then there are the prophetic books. The prophetic books contain predictions either of God's judgments on the sins of the people or of the deliverance of the church which would be finally completed at the coming of Christ. Now see how Perkins just says it like it's... Everybody believes this. When you read the prophets, a lot of times they're talking about the church. No distinction between Israel and Judah or Israel and the church, but God's people because this book is about God saving His people. These predictions of the prophets are interspersed with calls to repentance they almost always point to the consolation which would be found in Christ by those who repent. We said yesterday in the men's study, a lot of times we think of prophets as just predicting the future. Some of them did that, but the prediction was by way of merely preaching the law. Every one of those offices, prophet, priest, and king, was a mediator between God and men. And a prophet had the law of God in one hand and the, the hand of the people or, or pointing his finger in the face of the people in the, with the other hand and he was preaching to them, mediating, telling them what God had said. The law contained with it blessings and curses and so when a prophet is saying this is what's going to happen, here's the curses that are coming, he's only reiterating what God already said back in Deuteronomy. God already told them all of this stuff was going to happen and so it's not, it's not just a Here's, here's the future. It's here's what's going to happen just like God already said it would but when you disobeyed. That's what the prophets did. They foretold the Word of God. So we come to the major prophets and the minor prophets. And Perkins merely lists these, so I'll walk through this list. Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, a prophet of Judah during the time that Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. So again, keep all this in your mind when you're reading through the prophets. Northern kingdom, Israel, ten tribes. Southern kingdom, Judah, two tribes. 
as God begins to lead these nations in to take His people into captivity, Israel goes first. The northern kingdom of Israel is sacked first and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Okay, then Judah is taken in three waves as Babylon comes in and takes over Assyria and Egypt and then eventually Judah. And then Jerusalem itself as a city was wiped out in 586. And that's usually when you read about the, the time when the Babylonian captivity starts. That's the date you usually see, 586 B.C. So, so that can get confusing. But again, two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah when Israel was sacked. Isaiah focuses on the blessings coming to all nations through the tribe of Judah. He speaks of the coming judgment and the reign of the servant of Yahweh who is the Messiah. And um, you've probably often heard it referred to as the gospel according to Isaiah. He preaches that Christ is coming. Isaiah, then there's Jeremiah, prophet primarily to the city of Jerusalem. So there's your distinction. Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. We're focused in here. So Jeremiah is primarily to the city of Jerusalem when it was about all that was left of the entire nation. Babylon eventually defeated Egypt and Assyria and destroyed Jerusalem. And Jeremiah preached a message of repentance he preached about the coming captivity, the destruction of various other nations, including Babylon. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because they did not listen to him. His, his mission was go and preach to a people that are not going to listen. So he's the weeping prophet. He wept so much that he has another book, the next one, called Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's lament and sorrow over Jerusalem. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel... Is the next major prophet. He prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. So while they're already in captivity, he preached God's righteousness in sending the Israelites into captivity. They would wonder, God, if we're your people, why would you send us into captivity? Sixty-two times in the book we read the words, they shall know that I am God. That's his goal. You're going to know that I'm God. When I'm done, and, and if you pay attention, they never fell back into that same idolatry again. They will know by the time they come out, I am God. His prophecies use the language of Israel, Judah, and the temple to depict the coming church age and the reign of the Messiah and also the second coming of Christ, not the rebuilding of a temple in Israel in 2018. And then there's Daniel who lived in Babylon. Daniel was an advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar and he records the events of the captivity or within the captivity as well as prophecies of the future of the nation of Israel and the church. Daniel looks forward to the times of the church. He has a prophecy that was sealed up. We get to the book of the Revelation and we see those scrolls being unsealed and we get to see and learn of the church age. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are the major prophets. Then we come to the minor prophets. Hosea was a prophet to Israel. Hosea married Gomer. You'll remember the, the, uh, the wife of Hordom. He foretold that Israel would be cut off and that Gentile nations would be gathered to the Lord. And we quoted from that this morning. Joel, a prophet to Judah, predicted the coming judgment as well as the coming church age. Remember in Acts 2, 17-21, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. He says, 
These men are not drunk, for it is only the ninth hour, I think. Um, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Amos was a prophet from Judah who had a message for Israel. So now it's, we're really getting confused. He warned Israel of the coming judgment on their sins, and he prophesied the coming of one who would reign on David's throne and rule over all nations. That's Amos. Obadiah prophesied against the Edomites. So not any of God's people, but the Edomites who had long been enemies of God's people. Remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Esau's lineage is the Edomites. And so he prophesied against the Edomites. They had helped the Babylonians take over Jerusalem. And so Obadiah preaches to them. Jonah was a prophet sent to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And when you read that book, you see that the focus is not primarily on the prophecies, but on the prophet himself. He did not want to see repentance granted to the enemies of his people. The book of Micah was a prophet to both Israel and Judah and their respective capitals, Jerusalem and Samaria. He prophesied the fall of both and also prophesied of the coming of a ruler from the little town of Bethlehem. Nahum was a prophet to Nineveh 150 years after Jerusalem, or I mean after, after uh, Jonah. Did you know that? Two prophets went to Nineveh. One of them preached and they repented in sackcloth and ashes. The other one preaches and he prophesies the coming of their doom, which happened in 607. Habakkuk is a record of Habakkuk's wrestling with God over how he could use Babylon, a wicked nation, to bring judgment on his people. And ultimately, Habakkuk realizes God's righteousness and God's sovereignty over all things. Zephaniah was a prophet in Judah during the reign of King Josiah. That was a time of great revival. He prophesied the coming judgment upon Judah and the coming day of the Lord. And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all of these prophesied after the Jews had come back from captivity to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, again, when they got back to the city, they never struggled with idolatry anymore following after the gods of the nations, but they remained obstinate in their hearts with regard to true heartfelt worship of God. And so these men prophesied to them, and Malachi closes by looking forward to the coming day of the Lord, preceded by a prophet like Elijah, who we know as John the Baptist. So that closes the Old Testament. So we're looking forward to the coming of John the Baptist. Then we come to the New Testament. And Perkins divides these into two sections, the histories and letters. Its contents were written in Greek by the apostles or at least were approved by them. The histories, first the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they contain the narrative of the life, deeds, and teaching of Christ. Um, and if you pay attention, why are there four? Matthew writes to the Jews. His focus is on Jesus as the Messiah. Luke writes to Hellenists or Greeks. His focus is on Jesus as the perfect Son of Man who came to save and minister to all people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Luke's the one who mentions the Holy Spirit most often. Mark, was uh, his audience was the Romans. 
His focus was Jesus as the suffering servant of God who actively ministers on our behalf. And John wrote to a Greek and Roman world. His focus was that Jesus is fully human. He is fully divine. He is the Son of God in whom we must believe to have eternal life. So they all have a different focus. They all have a different audience. And they're all important to the canon of Scripture. Then we have the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke. Originally, Luke and Acts were together. Luke, Acts. It's an orderly history recording the work of Peter and Paul particularly. It illustrates the governing of the early church. And then there's the book of the Revelation. Notice how Perkins describes the Revelation. A prophetic history of the condition of the church from the age in which John the Apostle lived until the end of the world. Perkins said that book is about when John was writing all the way to the end. Not just the end. It's all of it. And so, therefore, the entire church age will benefit from that book. It's not something that is only going to be applicable to a, a, a certain people group at a specific time in history. So those are the history books, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and Revelation. Then we come to the New Testament, or I mean the, the letters of the New Testament. Romans, when you read Romans, it's, it's clearly just the Gospel laid out in, in as much detail as you will ever find it in Scripture. It goes all the way from chapters 1 to 8 on the gospel. Then chapters 9 through 11 talk about the, the history of redemption, what God is doing between the, the Jewish people and the Gentile people in sending Christ. And then 12 through the end of the book through uh, 16 talk about applying all that has been taught. So Romans is just the gospel, redemptive history. 1 Corinthians concerns reforming abuses in the church at Corinth. We don't get a lot of good lessons on how to do church in that letter. We more or less learn how to not do church in the first letter to the Corinthians. I guess we can, we can glean positives from that. But the church at Corinth was, was a, a sad tale. Second Corinthians, Paul has to defend himself and his apostleship against his opponents in that same church. There are multiple letters. Some say perhaps even at least four, to the Corinthians, but we only have two. Galatians um, is about justification by faith without the works of the law. If you ever hear someone talk about the Galatian heresy, the whole point is Judaizers were coming in and saying you must obey the law of Moses. And Paul writes to say, no, we have already settled that. You do not have to do that. Then we have... These other letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These confirm the churches in doctrine and in the duties of Christian life. In all of those, you'll see doctrine and application in every one of them. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, by the way, some suggest those are probably the first of his letters, the earliest writings of Paul. 1st uh, Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, we call the pastorals. They teach us about the governing of the church, the ordering of the church, what the church, what to do to keep the church in order. Um, and you remember Paul says, I write these things to you so that you will know how one ought to uh, conduct himself in the church of the living God, the household of faith. Uh, the church is a buttress of the truth. 
Titus, he left in Crete in order to set things in order to appoint elders in every town. So that's why those are called the epistles. If you want to learn how to do church, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And then Philemon was a letter from Paul to a man named Philemon uh, upon the or to, to get him to, to receive uh, a runaway slave, Onesimus, to treat him fairly. Um, Onesimus had, I believe, probably stolen something from Philemon, right? And Paul's writing to him to say, whatever he's taken, charge it to me. Don't hold it to his account. Um, I believe a big stab in the back of any uh, type of theonomy where Paul would have had to say, hey, send, turn him over to the authorities and have, them put, have him put to death or have him cut his hand off or something. He says, no, um, just charge it to my account. Hebrews deals with the person and offices of Christ and describes the character of the faith which produces fruit in good works. Hebrews, this church was in persecution. I believe Paul is writing to them or at least preaching to them telling them how to, um, to, to stay rooted in Christ and how Christ is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of the old covenant things pointed to Him and He's the greater um, in, in every area. Greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than the temple, greater than the uh, sacrificial system. He's greater than all of that and so therefore hold fast to the faith. James expounds good works which are to accompany faith. Martin Luther said... James, you could probably just leave out, but um, of course we would disagree. Um, but because we believe good works and holiness are uh, necessary. Uh, first and second Peter deal with the sanctification and the works of new obedience. First and second Peter are written to Jews who are scattered throughout the area in persecution. First John expounds signs of fellowship with God. You know, we say if you want to. If you're struggling with assurance, go to 1 John, read, study 1 John and see, are these things true about you? 2 John was written to, quote, the elect lady about perseverance in the truth. And people go back and forth. Was that actually a woman or was that just a pseudonym for a church, a, 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 a feminine description of a church? Um, but he's, he writes to them about perseverance in the truth. If you read 2 John, um, you see the word truth a lot in, in the opening verses. 3 John is addressed to Gaius, and it's about hospitality and constancy in the good. Jude emphasizes constancy in the faith against the influence of false prophets. Perkins says, These then are the books which belong to the canonical scriptures. Now back to the confession. We just read all those books of scripture. I've got about 12 minutes. All which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. The footnote or the proof text there is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God, hopefully you know. Theo, penustos, literally God breathed, or we might say God expired proceeding forth from the anthropomorphic mouth of God Himself. In other words, when we say sufficient, certain, and infallible, those all flow from the presupposition that the Word of God came from His mouth. It is His Word. All of those 66 books are the words of God. And as was mentioned yesterday morning, we have to understand when we're reading the Scriptures, God is speaking. 
to us. Third paragraph then, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Now, I won't spend a ton of time here. Apocrypha means hidden or obscure, the hidden books, the obscure books. These books were written sometime between the 4th and 2nd century B.C., that is, after Malachi, prior to the birth of Christ, in that period. And they are included in what we call the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. That's where they, they sort of get their weight, is that when, those, when they originally translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, they included those writings, and so a lot of people took that to mean, well, then it must be Scripture. These books of the Apocrypha include 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Manasseh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, as well as additions to the books of Esther and Daniel. Now, not all of those are included in the Roman Catholic Bible, but many of them are. The reason our confession makes a point to say the Apocrypha is not a part of the Bible is because they were writing in the face of Roman Catholicism. They wanted to clarify we do not hold their, um, these books to be inspired. And so that's why they write, not being of divine inspiration are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture. So we see that our forefathers did not accept these apocryphal books to be inspired by God. Therefore, they're not a part of the canon. Now, why did they not accept these books? Well, notice the proof texts that are given there in the confession. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Luke 24, 44. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now when we put that together, we learn that when our Lord wanted to give a summary of the, uh, the centerpiece of all of the Scriptures, namely Himself. He did so using what was considered the Bible of the Jewish people. The Jewish people never recognized the Apocrypha as inspired literature, as being given by God. Now the Roman Catholics can say, well, the Jews didn't accept Jesus either, so that's not a good argument. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Another proof, this might be helpful too, Luke eleven fifty 50 and 51. This is Jesus speaking. Again, this is, this is all we need is proof. What, what did Jesus approve? Jesus says in Luke 50 and 51, "...so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Jesus says, all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Now, who was Abel? Son of Adam and Eve. 
second generation, who was Zechariah. Zechariah, we read of his death that Jesus is referring to here in 2 Chronicles 24. The Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So Jesus is saying from the death of Abel all the way to the death of this man, Zechariah, He's not attempting to encapsulate all of the prophets individually. He's trying to encapsulate the, the whole of the prophetic writings. Our book, 2 Chronicles, is the last book of the Jewish canon. And Genesis was the first. So Genesis to 2 Chronicles 24, Jesus is saying, all of that is going to be laid at your feet. The blood of all of the prophets... In other words, all of the Jewish scriptures from Genesis to Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and he makes no mention of any apocryphal writings. So in other words, we could take from that, what was Jesus' Bible? Our Old Testament. Never mentions any apocryphal books. Again, now let's return to this idea of the Jewish people and the other proof text that's given, Romans 3, 2. Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, I'll read this. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, whether they rejected Christ or not, that does not mean God did not still entrust that people with His oracles. In other words, Paul the apostle of Christ under the inspiration of the Spirit says the Jewish people were entrusted with the revelation from God. Therefore, if they don't, didn't accept it as divine scripture into their canon, the framers of the confession would say, then we shouldn't accept it into ours. God was working through the Jewish people. Not that every one of them were right or wrong, but it was through that nation, through the prophet sent to that nation, that God spoke. Now, we could add to that the numerous errors and contradictions, false teachings that are in the apocryphal books, um, mentions of praying to the dead, offerings for the dead, the purgatory, and that idea is inferred from the apocrypha, um, witchcraft type things, mixing up serums to ward off, drink and ward off the devil. Um, a lot of weird, weird stuff in the apocrypha. And so the, the confession says, And therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So what good is the Apocrypha? I have a, a copy of the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek Old Testament, and it has the Apocrypha in it. What good is that? Well, it's just as good as any historical writing. You read it, learn from what's good, spit out the bad. If there's something false, I can read and say, that's false, that's, that's wrong. Take it and use it for whatever, whatever purpose you might, but it's not authoritative. It can't dictate us. Um, it can't dictate the church. It can't dictate doctrine. Now, that's very important. Remember, we talked several weeks ago about knowing. If there is this knowledge of God, this saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, how awful would it be to get to Judgment Day and find out we use the wrong books? But that, that little piece of information that we needed was in Tobit. 
man Tobit. That would be awful, would it not? Depart from me, I never knew you. Did you not read Tobit? So we need to be sure, be convinced of these things, that these books are not inspired. Again, even if they were included, there's no salvific information in, in the apocryphal books anyway. But you can get a lot of false doctrine. Again, a lot of the Roman Catholic uh, obsession with the dead and praying to saints and Mary and all this and that, they, they get from that, those writings. So, in conclusion, it is in the 66 books of the Bible, 39 old, 27 new, that we find the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Any questions? I know that was a lot. I typically try to stick to a paragraph or so, a couple sentences. Preaching the whole Bible is not my focus. It's recorded, so you can go back and hear it slower. But I wanted to use these two paragraphs, um, like I said, to the best make the best use of our time and, and where I think, what I think would be most helpful to us. If you deal with Roman Catholics often, um, dig more into the apocryphal writings. Listen to somebody. There are debates. Um, I listened to, to a, one debate, I believe, um, a debate on whether the apocrypha was Scripture or not. There's a lot of that stuff out there. Most of us don't deal with Roman Catholics very often. We need to understand that with, with Roman Catholicism especially, the issue is not just um, differences in worship style or, or differences in, in, in practice. Uh, they have a different canon than we have. They have an entirely different system, an entirely different way of salvation. It's While they may say, we believe, we, we must have faith in Jesus to be saved, they don't believe it's enough. No matter what they say, if they believed it was enough, then the mass would be done away with. So, if you deal with that stuff, look into that even more. But I thought that might be the most helpful for us. No questions then? All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you will use uh, this lesson tonight to be uh, of value to your people. Make us a people of the book. Uh, make us... Plant us firmly in Christ and in the Word of Christ, that the Word of Christ would dwell in us richly through faith, that we would know it, that we would set our hearts to study it, to do it, and to teach it, and that that legacy would live on in, in the generations to come from our studies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.